Hello, and welcome to another special episode of The Backstory by Commercial Observer. Today, we have the special privilege of sitting down with a name that is synonymous with ambition, foresight, and industry-shaping accomplishments. Marianne Gilmartin of Mag Partners is our interviewee for this episode. From the birth of Mag Partners itself to the mosaic of real estate development in New York City, she's seen and shaped it all. Hosted by our very own Max Gross, Editor-in-Chief of Commercial Observer, we're about to delve deep into the evolution, challenges, and triumphs of the real estate landscape in 2023. Hello, I'm Max Gross, Editor-in-Chief of Commercial Observer, and um, we have a real treat today. We are joined by one of the industry's true Titans. And I'm talking about Marianne Gilmartin of uh, Mag Partners. I don't think I even need to do any more of an introduction because if you don't know Marianne Gilmartin, you're listening to the wrong podcast because she is one of the greats. So Marianne, thank you so much for uh, being here today. Max, thank you. And thanks for that amazing introduction. It's humbling. <laughs> well, it is heartfelt. Um, so now how old is Mag Partners at this point? How many How many years have you guys been in around for? Mag Partners was formed in the beginning of 2018 after I departed for our city with um, a team and kicked off my own company in partnership with L&L and then subsequently took full control of the company and it became Mag Partners. Right, right. Now, um, I imagine that starting a company in... Um... Uh, 2018 is a little different than starting it now, but um, Marianne, tell us a little bit about um, Mag Partners' origin story. Why don't I start with the why of it, um, my decision to start the company. It was after an amazing run, a 23-year run at Forest City, where I ultimately took the helm um, from Bruce Ratner and ran the company as the CEO of New York. And during that era, we built so many amazing projects and operated those buildings and put together a portfolio that would be really any developer's dream. And as you know, Max, often in the business, you learn one basic food group and you build uh, what you can in that, in that area of expertise. So you might be an office developer, a residential developer, or a hotel developer. At Forest City, during the era from um, the 90s until 2020, we were building a lot of different types of things, including a basketball arena. And I can say that it is something I have a lot of gratitude for because you are what you build in the building of a development company. It's the people that build great projects, but the projects themselves really do speak volumes about the organization. And so I just was fortunate enough to be part of a run at Forest City where we touched so many different opportunities in all corners of the city. And I was able to build so many different types of buildings. And so with all of that in mind, Forest City was marching its way toward becoming a real estate investment trust, where I realized we would be much more of an operating company with a development you know, flair, as opposed to a development company through and through that operated everything it built. And so seeing the writing on the wall and then recognizing that it would go through some strategic considerations, I went to the board uh, in a very amicable way and explained that my first love was building and I wanted to build the kinds of projects that we built together at Forest City. They were very supportive and I left on extremely good terms and was able to launch the company with their full support and um, the rights to, to claim 
all of the great work that was done on my watch, which again is an, a tribute to Farsi that they allowed us to lay claim to uh, the portfolio of buildings that we built and operated. And so it really gave me great footing to step out into the industry in a way that was mildly intimidating in a business like this in New York, where it's a family dynasty business, often very few firms, development firm, ground up firms are founded um, and even fewer by women. So going out in 2018, I knew that I was um, taking on a pretty Herculean task, but I did it not to build infill lots throughout New York City. I did it to do the same ambitious project uh, development that we did during my years in the public realm. And so I wanted to build big, large-scale public-private partnerships, but do it from a much more entrepreneurial spin. And I think what ended up happening along the way is that I watched bureaucracy, the public markets, the analysts, and um, uh, generally the, the economy look at real estate development a certain kind of way. And I came to the conclusion that the best model was a private model where the money was private, not in the public markets, and that the team was lean and nimble and super capable of building across all asset types. And so that was the, the foundational inspiration for creating Mag Partners. And then of course, with this team of people that I spent an entire career building, I knew that I needed those folks to join me and they did. And so that was the basis upon which in 2018, I had the audacity to think that I could build a development company that did the very same types of buildings that I was able to do with public money, with a large balance sheet um, across many asset classes. So that was 2018. And then of course the world's been fairly wonky since. And I would say that one of the things that makes um, the work at Forest City so interesting and the team there so incredible is that we build through cycles not into any one cycle, right? So it was this idea that sure, the world went upside down in 2020, but um, you know we had, we had been through downturns, we had been through Sandy, we had been through 9-11. And so the, the way that the team is hardwired is not to think about just the here and now, but to play the long game and talk about long-term value creation. And that really has been part of what keeps us um, chugging along and believing that no matter how tough it is in any given moment, that this business is about long-term value creation. You've definitely done a lot of different asset classes. And um, I, I, I do want to ask you uh, the last time you uh, went to see the Brooklyn Nets, but um, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, in this time yes. and place, it does seem like housing is, is a really big thing. And you guys have been doing a lot of housing. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I love housing, um, not just because the city is in dire need uh, for more housing of all types, but because it is, as a development opportunity, the most predictable. There's no pre-leasing required. It's not uh, renting a room every night like a hotel. Um, the demand is insatiable, uh, and it's a repetitive building process. So I'd say in the, in the world of complexity, it's the most necessary right now in the city and probably the easiest to execute on. Now that doesn't mean Max that it's easy to find the sites, but you know once you find the site, you know that you will build a building that will lease. And the only way in which that building will struggle is if you don't know how to build it, you um, spend too much building it, or you get really greedy and you push your rents. But it's always pricing dislocation. If your building's not, not filling up, it's because you've pushed rents and all you need to do is to modulate those rents back down to where the market is. And if you build it, they will come. So it's a very attractive 
asset class in New York City for ground up development. And so we set out on a quest to find good sites. Uh, again, not an easy um, undertaking. The first project for MAG Partners was the site on 28th Street that was formerly a parking lot with Edison. We have a 99 year ground lease. And just to give you a sense of the, the timeline for a development project of 480 units of housing, we started in 2018 and we just opened the building this spring. And so it's an amazing building, but it is sort of a great example of all that goes into putting a development site together and the early the early months and years that go into uh, putting a shovel on the ground when people think geez that site is laying fallow i wonder what's going on there's so much going on behind the scenes that is invisible to the pedestrians and, and new yorkers um, writ large because of how complex the business is but we're super proud of, of, of that project. Its its name is Ruby. I want to begin by saying that one of the mandates of the company is to build uh, beauty and demonstrate that you can build beauty and create value, not just for investors and partners, but for the communities in which we build, and that we can build buildings and look something like the people we build for. And that seems very simple, but that's not necessarily the way the business works. And so that is the mission and the mandate of MAG Partners. And in doing that, we decided that we were creating um, a brand where whatever we build in New York that is residential will be named after an unsung hero, um, an unrecognized woman in the city that has delivered uh, for the city and made it a better place, but hasn't really gotten uh, fair recognition. So in that spirit, the name of the building is not named after one of my children, which as you know is a, <laughs> is a common thing amongst developers. Uh, Ruby is a fashion designer um, who was affiliated with FIT um, and came from the Caribbean and um, is no longer with us, but made um, really amazing contributions to the industry and remains to this day fairly um, unrecognized for her outsized contribution. So we went to the estate of Ruby and we asked for permission and they were delighted and we went to FIT and we started a scholarship in her name and that building is really um, sort of a living um, monument to uh, the trials and tribulations of, of women in New York City who have made contributions and we want to recognize those women and so this is the first of a trio that's underway in New York uh, by MAG Partners and so this building is open. This building has been a leasing wonder. We're effectively signing at least one lease a day. Uh, it's a big building, but it's a two-tower scheme. What I like about this building is it's in West Chelsea, it's in the Hudson Yards community, but it's a very, very different experience in terms of its scale, its mid-block location, the fact that it has a garden. It's not a very tall um, tower as much as it is a very quaint, beautiful, large building that feels like home. And so this building has been received uh, beautifully in the marketplace and the rents are, uh, are really record-breaking and we're seeing a very diverse uh, collection of, of New Yorkers that want to live there. And uh, today, after opening the building in May, the building is, um, is over 53% leased and one of the two towers is nearly complete. And so again, it's an amazing um, reflection of the depth and the strength of New York City's residential market and frankly this severe shortage of high quality housing makes this building super attractive 
to uh, all a lot of New Yorkers across the board. Mm. Uh, it is um, something of a, a, a hobby of mine to go through the Bronx and look at all of the names on the apartment buildings there. And there is, you're, you're, you're right. I think it is mostly the, like the, the builder's daughter from like a hundred years ago or something like that. It's fascinating. I'm not saying it's the best way to name a building, but it, it, it definitely was uh, um, done in the past. Um, so Marianne, obviously there are all sorts of impediments to building right now. Um, but one of the biggest, I think, is financing. And that just has been um, such a migraine for so many um, developers. Tell us a little bit about your experience right now. We're living um, that experience right now, Max. And, and so on the heels of Ruby, we have sourced two other, two other residential projects. And I think we are among a very small few that have projects that are going into the ground under the prior Affordable New York tax program. And as mm. you know, these buildings need to be brought online um, by 2026, hell or high water, where you lose the tax benefit. And losing the tax benefit in many ways can translate into losing the economic viability of the opportunity. And so around the corner from Ruby, for example, at 335 8th Avenue, many New Yorkers know that site because it is the former tennis bubble. Our partner is Penn South. It's an affordable housing cooperative in Chelsea, and they set out to um, develop a, a part of their um, campus into a into a multifamily building so that they could use the proceeds from the ground lease to maintain the broader community at Penn South, which is about 3,500 cooperators that live between 26th Street and 29th Street along 8th and 9th Avenues. And so it's a really important um, cooperative in New York City's history. This site sits on the 8th Avenue side of that of that complex. And we are building there about 190 units, 30% affordable. And we signed an amazing lease with Lidl, the grocery store. Mm. We haven't even put a shovel in the ground. We signed that lease for 23,000 square feet. Imagine a supermarket committing to a building before a shovel's in the ground. That is a sign of a food desert, right? In that area of New York City. So we have this amazing lease. We have this amazing site. We have this project called Ruby which is around the block, which is proof positive of the strength and the depth of the rental market and the demographic. So we have all the right stuff. Nonetheless, to finance that building today has been as hard as, almost as hard as financing Barclays Center, which really? those, those are junk bonds, right? So Barclays was always built by um, a certain type of financing mechanism that was never supposed to be easy. The downturn in 2009 made it harder, but I would say that we know hard because we do hard. You know, I financed the New York Times building after 9-11. So I don't want to sound dramatic. This is 480 units of multifamily housing in West Chelsea. It should be a no-brainer. And what's been interesting is not just the construction room, but the LP equity, which is typically lining up to invest in projects like this has been sidelined because so many of the deals are capitalized now through structured debt or you know pref equity. So the whole game has changed in which multifamily buildings actually get capitalized. And so we've had to kind of change the whole formula, um, redesign the capital stack. Um, we're putting much more equity in than we usually would because of the construction lenders uh, requirements. And then moreover, if it isn't hard enough, we're faced with the deadline, which we have to manage through language and sometimes guarantees. 
as to the what ifs. What if you don't finish this building in in time for the for the 421A program? So the le the levels of complexities have grown, and even though the project's not big by New York standards, it's under 200 units. This should be as straight up the middle as one could ask for in the development world, and yet it's it's just plagued by so many additional challenges given the times we find ourselves. And imagine, imagine that we are signing $5,000 a month studios all day long at Ruby. $5,000 for a studio apartment that's 450 square feet. So you can prove that the income's going to be there. But when you think about capital and what's the, dis the disruption in the capital markets, it has made even something as compelling as multifamily rental in New York City, um, like, like scaling a mountain. Wow. No, it's actually funny. Like it does seem though that like construction loans are the only kinds of loans that are actually crossing the finish line because they're do or die. As you said, like, you know, when, when, you know, if you miss out on your 421A, that's it. And so. Um, and imagine to that point that we faced a moment on our 28th street project at Ruby, where we were taking out our construction lender, right? We finished construction and now we're looking to put permanent debt on the project and it's high performing, but it's not stabilized. And so even there we had, um, we got a bridge solution um, where we decided not to go out and get the permanent loan because we would have gotten that loan on inferior terms. And instead we elected to um, secure a $196 million loan, like a bridge loan through Elliott Investment Management. And we did that because we're so bullish on the future of this building that we would have been giving up our upside if we had locked in long-term financing. So mm. instead did something which heretofore in the multifamily asset class would have been unnecessary, which is to bridge from a construction loan to permanent financing. And again, yet another sign of what's happening in the industry and in the market in today's um, capital market environment. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that we have another building that's that timeline wise is on exactly the same trajectory as as um, as 335 8th Avenue, the Penn South building. Again, 200-ish units, 50th and 2nd Avenue, a very stable, desirable location, um, beautiful design, a fee ownership position. So we own the fee because sometimes ground leases are more complicated to finance, right? So we own the fee and we have a beautifully designed building and we're out getting financing. And again, construction loans are there. The terms are very different and the capital is there, but the, the, the way that that capital wants to be in these transactions is, is dramatically different than it was two years ago. So you're not just in New York, you are in the DC area, or I should say the uh, Baltimore area. So tell us a little bit about that project. When you do what we do in New York, it's, um, it's very challenging. And I was invited to go look at this massive 235 acre master plan development by Kevin Plank, the founder of Under Armour. And um, I went really with an eye toward giving advice and guidance. And along the way, we fell in love with Baltimore and the project. And I think it's because very few developers are given the opportunity to develop 14 million square feet, uh, a master plan development in an American city on the waterfront on the south side of 95 with partners like Goldman Sachs and Kevin Plank's family office. And so I just say to you that what's happening in Baltimore is one of the largest, most ambitious, and potentially most impactful 
uh, public-private partnerships in the country today. And so Under Armour is building their headquarters uh, right at Baltimore Peninsula, and we are leasing both office and multifamily um, residential space, and we are creating a place. And so I, I tell you this only because this gets to, um, we don't want to build buildings, we want to build places, and we want to change skylines, and we want to transform ground planes. That's what this company wants to do, and we want to do it because developers have an enormous responsibility to make a contribution to a city because our contributions are lasting. They don't come and go. These buildings are here to stay. And so we're super excited about Baltimore Peninsula. It's it's a project that um, means a lot to the city and really gives the city of Baltimore a lot more to love. 14 million square feet is, is the size of the central business district in the entire city of Baltimore. And we have the entitlements to build all of that again on the south side of 95. And so it's, a, it's an amazing project. And obviously New York is our first love, but it, it does hold true that if you can do it in New York and you have the right attitude and you don't come with a lot of arrogance, that you can actually take your show on the road and be highly effective and be widely accepted in other places who are just very, very honored for New Yorkers to come to their cities and make contributions. And for that, we're very proud and grateful. Well, I have only about two dozen more questions, but I think we are out of time. Um, but I'm not going to let you go without with the dodge on the Brooklyn Nets. So, are, I mean, like, you know, when was the last time you went to a Brooklyn Nets game? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to confess to you my issue, my complicated relationship with the building. So, you know, when you build something like that, and it takes seven to 10 years of your professional life, you grow very attached to it. And so, you know, my, my boys were ball boys um, for the Nets. My, my brother uh, sells for the Nets. And so I have lots of very fond and very real connections to the building. It's very hard to go in that building as um, an ordinary Joe. And so <laughs> I can tell you that um, I, I wasn't a Fairweather fan, but, you know, I was really the bricks and mortar gal. Bruce Rattner did the basketball and I did the bricks and mortar. So I love the building. And I did go to a game last season. When I left um, Forest City, I did buy seats on the floor and I became a ticket holder. Um, and that was really fun. But I would say to you that I enjoy going into that building for a specific reason, you know, to be invited in. Uh, we still have very good relationships with the current owners of the building. So I'm there, but I, I would say I'm usually there for business and I'm not sort of a leisurely Nets fan, um, I am from my couch, but not from the building, just because the building takes me back to a place. And look, the owner's box at, at Barclays is a really special, special place to watch a game. And um, and so that's how I prefer to be in the building. But of course, it is uh, an achievement of a lifetime to have been part of a team to put that building together. You know, I live a half mile away from the building, and so I get to see the stream of, of kids and fans that go in and out of the building on game day. And I do go to concerts there as well. So I am enormously proud of the building. I just need to work through my uh, my relationship with it after leaving the company, if that makes sense. Hey, I, I get it. I'm not. <laughs> it's complicated, people. All right. And that was great. Marianne Gilmartin, thank you so much for being with Commercial Observer today. Always a pleasure to be with you, Max. Thank you very much for listening. That brings us to the end of a truly compelling discussion. A heartfelt thank you to Marianne Gilmartin for offering a deep dive into the world of MAG Partners and the broader New York real estate tapestry this week. For more enlightening conversations and industry insights, stay connected with us at commercialobserver.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, 
Don't forget to subscribe, share, and maybe even leave us a nice review. Till next week.